Someone once asked Maurice Samuel, why don't people like the Jews? And he gave a wonderful answer. He said, no one loves his alarm clock. And we are the alarm clock for the world. When the world is sleeping, we go off. And nobody loves to be woken up. But that is our task. And this morning, when we read about Abraham, we are reminded that God says, you will be a blessing to the nations, not just to the Jewish people, but to the world. And one peculiar and powerful thing about blessings is you don't always want them. Sometimes blessings come into your life and you resist those blessings with both hands and you push them away, but they are still blessings. There's a blessing. And probably an alarm clock. So it is important for us to declare unashamedly that we know that it may actually hurt, that it is against our interests, that from every point of view of real politic we would keep our mouths shut, but people died, and they suffered. And we are the Jewish people, and we will not keep quiet in the face of suffering, especially when it is denied by the world. So once again, I ask you a question that was asked in a very different way. Who remembers the Armenians? We must. Hello. Hi, David. It's, I'm just uh, I'm downstairs in the line for to park. Um, I'm um, there seems to be a buzz, a holdup, but with somebody. But uh, I think it's finally cleared. And I'm coming right. All right, I'll be up in a minute. Okay, bye. Hello. I'm here for. I'm here with for a meeting with David Wolpe. Um, what's your name? Alec. Alec. I think yes. Think this is the, the young lady who was just asking. Yes. Can I have your uh, vaccine card and, or not have it, but see your vaccine card and ID? Yes, one second. Um. Ashton's front desk. Oh, the front desk. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have Alec here for a meeting with Rabbi Wolfie. One moment. Let me see your ID. Okay. Last name is as follows. Mike Oscar Uniform Hotel India Bravo India Alpha November. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh wait, wait. Okay, you said this is a confirmed meeting with Rabbi Wolfie for today? Yes. Yes, he, it he's is. Just on the phone. Um, but Rabbi Wolfie's assistant just rolled through and asked if he had arrived, but he was the car behind her. A informal, loose, loose contract. Okay, give me uh, 
one minute, please. I need to confirm verbally with Robert Wilson consistent because the only confirmation I have is 2016. Stand by one minute. Copy that. Well, how's your Fat Tuesday? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Why are you so happy? I'll yeah, no. Yeah, it's tequila. It, it's, it's yeah, that's right. What do you mean? I have plenty to be happy about. Good weather. What's there to complain about? Right. I'm sorry I'm not tall enough to block the sun. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, it's, I need the D. I need the vitamin D. I think everybody does. I've been playing peekaboo for the last week and a half or so. Like, I'm here. I'm psych. Who technos out? That's just wrong. Don't add techno music to disco. Ashton in front desk. Go for front desk. Waiting for a confirmation. I'm starting to get a line. I believe he's so forth. Copy. I'm sending them down. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Dave, uh, Rabbi Wolpe in his office. Right? Thank you.
Hello, is this David, uh, Rabbi Wolpe's office? Yeah, yeah. I'm Bob, Rabbi Thank you. Hello. Hi. So, how long is the podcast? A million. A po you know, it's as long as it's as long as I can squeeze. Because you, you tell me. Because I have a two thirty. Okay. Well. So, do you want to reschedule it? Do you want to do it now and, and we, make it shorter? It's up to you. We can talk for fifteen for sure. as long as they come, and then okay. I can come back and we can continue. Okay. Sure. And do uh, it in two here doses. Or, yeah. uh, here is good. Okay. Wherever you feel comfortable. Right. Fine. Yeah, All it's right. not formal. It's not yeah. formal. No it's just us. I'm happy to do whatever you whatever. I, I you know. appreciate. I'm sorry for okay. getting caught up. That's in, all right. And not making more time earlier. How is everything? Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, awful, but pretty good. Awful. Yeah. You know. I've been meaning to talk to you because I've had a rough go of it myself these really? last two. You know. Right. Since the. Uh, since everything went upside down, you know. Yeah. And I've been wondering how you've... It's been brutal at the synagogue in a lot of ways, but that's a separate discussion. Separate in, in the sense of it's brutal, separate from... Vaccination, anti-vaccination, masks, anti-masks, all of that. Like real divisions. We are we, we're not recording. We are recording, but is okay. it, but it, we don't have to... Yeah, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I would frame it very differently if we we're recording this for, okay. yeah. I would say the synagogue has had a hard time because there have been some real serious divisions between the ways people react to COVID. And, and they fall largely on political lines, not completely, but largely. Of course. Yeah. So it's been hard. It's been hard. <sighs> I mean... It feels to me like the whole, the COVID thing has been a, it's been a theatrical pageant that, yeah. that kind of encompasses what's been building up long before the COVID thing happened. Right. Right. I mean, and everything that's happened within COVID from the George Floyd thing mm -hmm. to any, every little chapter, uh, up, including this war, am I, the way I look at it, um, feels like it's been this it, it's the script has been being written for years and this was the this was showtime yeah you know yeah i think that there's there's a lot of truth to that and and part part of the way you can see it is it's not only in america because it's been elsewhere too although in to different degrees um so it's clearly something bigger than any single personality or event Having said that, um, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of junctures along the way where things could have been handled differently and would have made it easier. You know. I mean, given the it, it isn't just about America, as you know. I mean, for me personally, you saw the kind of you you saw the 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 movie about Armenia's yeah. revolution, yeah. and to see what happened, to see what. To see that, yeah. uh, and and what the war last year in Karabakh did to that, did to right. the uh, spiritual achievement that that was, right. is, was a bit much for me to handle. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't comprehended it. I mean, it's also I I can't remember a public 
event that wasn't in America that had as profound uh, profound a uh, an effect on the public as the Ukrainian war is having. You know, Iraq is not comparable because that was America's war. Um, 9-11 is not comparable because that happened in America, but I really can't remember a foreign conflict that we were not really involved in yeah. that was so impactful. And I think, again, it's all this buildup and all these, uh, it's, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yes, the world is in an interesting state. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, forgetting the world for a moment, I've been, I've, I've wanted to kind of know how you personally are handling okay. it. Um, I don't know if I've ever asked you how you became a rabbi to begin with. I, my father was a rabbi in Philadelphia. I grew up wanting to be a writer. I was working at a summer camp out here, actually, just because I wanted to try a camp in California. A rabbi approached me and said, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to write. He said, what do you want to write about? I said, I don't really know. I just always wanted to write. He said, go to rabbinical school for a year. Worst that happens is you'll learn some things. The best that happens is you'll find your vocation. And I did, and I loved it. And that's really what happened. And then, and I intended to be a professorial type, but through a whole series of other things, um, after 10 years of being a professor, I ended up here at the synagogue. I mean, being a rabbi is like being a writer, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what he was saying, is you'll be able to write, but you'll do other things too. You'll have a subject that you'll write about. And I, I mean, for me, it's been terrific. It's been great. Have you, have you, do you have any, because you know, you write several, you write for Time, yeah. you write for uh, the Jerusalem Post, is it? Right. Yes. Yeah. And those are like 200 word right. aphoristic, yeah. uh, what is it called? There's a word for, there's a few tones or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. There's yeah. something for, yeah. Uh, Hoffer, like we were, last time I was here, I was talking to you about Eric Hoffer and, mm -hmm. and his his yes. genre is similar, yeah. um, and uh, and you write. I'm sure you've and you've written several books. Have you have you do you do you deign to write something in a genre you haven't yet? Um, I don't know fiction something. I've like thought this. about fiction, but I don't think that I'd be as good at it as I'd want to be. So that's why I haven't done it. Have you thought of writing naughty short stories in the manner of Isaac Bashevis Singer or? No. I haven't done that. Or, Although my last book, barrel. my last book was a biography of King David, and I've never done a biography before. So, oh, that's interesting. That was a different uh, undertaking. A different undertaking. Yeah. 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 Well, our, we were united by a writer, mm -hmm. um, Joseph Epstein. Right. Epstein. Uh, God, God, strike me for that for yeah. that faux pas. Um, whom I must revisit before too long, and. Um, I've been thinking. I know you're you're a fan of Max Beerbohm, very much so. Deceptively not Jewish, but yes, exactly. But nevertheless, <laughs> yeah. a bunch of his books are behind you. Oh no, kidding! Oh, there's a portrait of Max. Yeah. Oh, it's the and believe it or not, those uh, books right there, the ones that are multicolored, that's a signed set of Beerbohm's essays. Oh my God! Yeah, was that a gift? No. Oh, you that was a gift to myself. A gift to yourself. You found you, yep. you found them. I found it online years ago, and I got it at a steal, and I've kept it. Yeah, so. yeah that's a good one. Um, yeah, don't tell anybody they're here. <laughs> I'll send, I w I've been thinking a lot about something defeasible. Mm -hmm. The essay of uh, where he's at the beach, one of those British beaches, English beaches, and he's observing 
the boy build a castle, yep. and the and it, just the relish yeah. with which yep. he destroys it. Yeah. And it feels very relevant to our time. It does, it's true. <laughs> um, God. So what is the podcast? Jews forever, of course, uh, where I went to school. We sang Hanukkah songs in the Christmas show. We stayed home on Yom Kippur. We all became Sandy Koufax on Jewish holidays. But it was in fourth grade when I had my first experience with the Jews. It was a class assignment. We had to draw something. There was a grid on a sheet of paper. And we had to make our own little design by connecting the dots. I wasn't much of an artist when it came to drawing. My visual art skills ran to the hopelessly abstract. But in this assignment, the dots helped me achieve a certain symmetry. You could even detect a kind of perpetual motion if you looked at my design a certain way. I was proud of my work. Mrs. Pottishman was not. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Pottishman, the petite ice queen with marble eyes, was not happy at all. She kept me after class. She pulled me aside and held up my drawing and pointed to it and said, Have you seen this symbol before? I was shocked. I, I couldn't imagine why I was in trouble. I didn't copy anyone else's work. I never plagiarized anything. My design was an original invention. No, I said, I haven't seen it anywhere before. I came up with that all by myself. Have your parents told you about the Holocaust? She asked. The Holocaust. What's the Holocaust? I know now what the Holocaust is. I know everything about the Holocaust now. I mean, at this point, you could say I've forgotten more about Shoah business than many will ever learn. But at the time, fourth grade, I didn't know anything about it yet. So I said, no, Mrs. Potishman, uh, what is the Holocaust? 
It's when millions of Jews were killed by the Nazis, she explained. That's, that's horrible, I said, but what does that have to do with my drawing? And that's when Mrs. Potterman informed me that, for my class assignment, I had invented the swastika. Thank you. You know, the month of December is a joy for Christians all over the world. But also in December, my own people celebrate one of their biggest holidays. It's called Hanukkah. Sometimes the world just doesn't understand your work. I didn't get in any trouble for inventing the swastika because Mrs. Potterman liked me. She had a soft spot for me. In fact, the next time she kept me after class, it was to recommend me for the gifted program, which half the other kids in class were already enrolled in, but not half the Gentiles. Anyway, the point is that Mrs. Potterman was petite, sexy, and cool, and she liked me. And last I heard, her name is now Mrs. Gold. The question is, what is it like? What is it like to be a teacher, an authority? What is it like to be a Jewish authority? What is it like to be a rabbi? What is it like to be the rabbi of Sinai Temple, the conservative synagogue on that lush, golden corridor of Wilshire Boulevard that connects Westwood to Beverly Hills? What is it like? What is it like to be the spiritual authority of a congregation of West Side Jews in the middle of a plague, which did not pass over this time? Newsweek has called David Wolpe one of the most influential rabbis in America. Jerusalem Post has called him one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world. LA Business Journal has called him one of the 500 most influential people in Los Angeles. Not rabbis or Jews, people. Some wisecracker once said that Jews are just like other people, only more so. And if that's the case, then rabbis are just like other Jews, only much more so, I'm assuming, thanks to assimilation. But I doubt David Wolpe is that much like other rabbis. He's probably the most famous one in the world. He's been a rabbi to such people as Kirk Douglas and Don Rickles and God knows how many other stars of David. He's even inspired a fictional rabbi detective, a detective, if you will, the one who solves the murder mystery in the novel Wedding Wipeout. David Wolpe is also a writer, a columnist for Time, the author of eight books. These include Why Faith Matters, Making Loss Matter, and most recently a biography called David, the Divided Heart. The book is a slender and very sharp examination of King David's broken hallelujah, of how the biblical Jewish king found the secret chord and played it and strained it 
and snapped it and tied it up again with worn-out tools for a final strum. Dearest David, what is it like? This episode takes place over the course of four Curb Your Enthusiasm length visits from early March to the end of May. Things happened over the course of these visits. After the second visit, David Wolpe announced his retirement from Sinai Temple and from being a rabbi after 25 years. Next June, he will move east for a stint at the Harvard Divinity School. Another thing that happened a few weeks after my second visit, where you will hear me call for someone to topple the algorithm from the top, was Elon Musk launching a bid to buy Twitter. What else happened? Oh, at some point along the way, I was assigned to watch American Crime Story Impeachment for the Perfume Nationalist podcast, which I did after my fourth and final visit with David Wolpe, only to find out that David Wolpe was the rabbi of Monica and the Lewinskys when that whole thing occurred. He was a brilliant, talented, extraordinary child, and for the leader of the United States, we need an adult, Rabbi Wolpe said in a sermon in 1998. Coincidences, perhaps. Meaningless coincidences. But they're still fun to notice when reviewing a conversation broken in four parts over three months. Just like it's fun to notice that the Hebrew pronunciation of amen rhymes with chow mein. I have a soft spot, as you can tell, for unnecessary details that pop up over and over again, witnessed only by the recorder. I first met David Wolpe in 2016, and that was not a coincidence. I met him because our mutual friend Joseph Epstein, the great author and essayist in Chicago, said I should meet him. He's a genuinely good guy with no BS about him, is what Joseph Epstein specifically said. So I dragged my Gentile ass to the synagogue to say hello. There is something very naked about the face of a priest, perhaps because the rest of him is so covered up. David Wolpe struck me at first sight as a serious thinker and a trustworthy man, even before I learned that back in 2007, he had given a powerful sermon urging the Jewish community to ignore pressure from Israel and Turkey and finally recognize the Armenian genocide. At some point in that meeting, five, six years ago, David asked me, so, you know, how can I help you? What, what, do, you, what do you want? What did you come here for? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, just, just wanted to have a little chat, you know? I didn't, well, you think I came here out of some sort of practical purpose, some sort of uh, diplomatic design? You think I know what I want? Don't you know I'm a millennial rabbi? You want I should know what I want? You tell me, fellow night owls, what do I want? What am I driving at? What case am I even trying to solve here? I won't say this adventure is a broken hallelujah, but it's, it's a broken something, so... Take these clues, take the suspects and motives and hypotheses and piece them together, connect the dots, and tell me if they add up to any kind of design.
always are. I know you're right about the blues. You live some life. You'd never choose. I'm just a fool, a dreamer who forgot to dream of the me and you. I'm not alone. I've met a few traveling lad like we used to do. We could sit, do the desk thing to, so we're closer, you know, for the audio purposes. Sure. Um, yes, I've received and begun reading the uh, House of David, or David House Divided, oh, your biography. So uh, the, right, I'm going to work. Divided Heart. Private, right. The Divided Heart. Right. Okay, so I've decided that if you'll. Welcome. If, I'm assuming we have only half an hour this time. Yeah. So uh, if, I, if I can come back a few times, then I'll be working that in and <laughs> okay. open into okay. the David on David right. journey, if that's okay. You give it a shot. All right. Well, great. But if, just in the meantime, um, I want to ask you about Don Rickles. Okay. The, you, I read that you, what, your, your story, your piece about going to his house for the first time right. and being having to stand outside the door for 10 minutes as yeah. he barraged you with yes. quips. Yes. How, what, what is the um, condition there? I mean, he, he, was, he was always, in my experience of him, he was always on. There was never a moment that he wasn't like the Don Rickles on stage because also you know, when he was on stage at the end of his act, he was always open and emotional and vulnerable. And so I came to his house to do the bris of his grandson, I think it was. And, and when I rang the bell, he said, who is it? I said, Rabbi Wolfie said, no Jews allowed or no rabbis here or something like that. Or on and on and on. And he wouldn't stop. I mean, I kept buzzing and he wouldn't stop until I was like helpless with laughter and only then would he buzz me in. Um, so it was, I, I really, uh, and then he told this hilarious story that actually is not going to come on tape very well because it involves gestures, um, but about going with Bob Newhart to, uh, to Israel, and they went to the, uh, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it was an Israeli guide, and Bob Newhart was, is, was and is a religious Catholic, um, and the guide would say, and here they laid the baby Jesus, and then would look at Rickles and go, like that. <laughs> like, no way. <laughs> Didn't happen. And then he would look back at Newhart and say something sincere, like, you know, and, right. and, and the he, wise man. And then he would look at, at, at Rickles and make some dismissive comment. Right. Um, so. I, it just occurred to me yesterday that both Bob Newhart and Mel Brooks are still alive. Yeah. It's amazing. And Newhart was at the, both, both Don Rickles' um, funeral and also. Uh, and also um, who else? Or some, uh, I don't remember who else. Someone else's funeral that I did. He's yeah, he's and not not a young man. 
but he's still doing okay. Um, no, not a young man. Mm. I hope Mel is doing okay because he seemed every time I've seen him, most recently, it's been like he's had the full energy. Yeah, it's amazing. The full blazing amazing, saddle. Amazing. Amazing. So, but it seems like torture to me that uh, Don Rickles had has to subject every single incoming human being to yeah. a laughter test. Yeah, I, I'll say this though: the last time I saw him, which was actually at Kirk Douglas's hundredth birthday party, he told me about how his father was the person who supported the Jewish community and everybody depended on him. And he was serious <coughs> then, like he had a serious moment. He could have serious moments, um, but yeah, he did enjoy an audience, no question about it. So. Was there a sense of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there's a... <coughs> it's not sickness. I'm not worried about it. Um, yeah. but. There's a sense of like tortured Jewish existence going on here. I mean, just to have to. I mean, I well, the whole question of where comedy comes from <coughs> in the Jewish tradition is an interesting question, and I have no doubt that um, a history of pain or suffering is at least a piece of it. Um, but and also the outsider, the outsiderness, I think, is a piece of it too, since comedy, <coughs> comedy is essentially an art of the outsider. Um, it's the observer as opposed to the participant. So. I think all of that, and uh, I don't know, it was also a function of his personality. I mean, he just was a person who was on and liked and liked <coughs> the frisson of the shock too. Well, the shock part for sure. That was his yeah, right. That was his uh, stock and trade. Um, you want? Yes, I will. I don't know what I don't. Know, must be a a reaction. Yeah, that's, to uh, wisdom. An allergy to the rabbi's office. An, uh, an allergy to the to yeah. Talmudic. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, pugilism of, <laughs> in the right. air. Um, <clears throat> I'm very excited about this about your book on David because I I feel like it's there has to be a, a there has to be a sense in which it's a book about your not only your vocation but yourself. Uh, and that's presumptuous. I mean, maybe yes and maybe. It is in some way, but I think it's largely about, it's more about, much, much more about David. It's more about the actual King David. David. I know, I realize yeah. it's not, no, I didn't, yeah. I didn't mean it in a new agey, stupid yeah. sort of way. But in a, it did occur to me, like, you know, I've been calling you David since the beginning because somehow that was the process of introduction. Right. And it's, and I've been wondering how, if that's weird or not, given that you're such a distinguished no, not for me. I mean, but the, but, yeah. but well, I'm glad it's. I'm, I I appreciate that, yeah. but also I'm wondering if that has to do with just the fact that David itself is a uh, on like an honorific. You know, it's not just it's not a casual name. Yeah, but, I mean, not if you grow up with it, it doesn't feel that way. It's just right. my name, and also there are so many Davids. David is a really common name. I, mean, I was never in a class with other kids where there wasn't at least one other David. It's so. a super common name, yeah. yet. Which which distracts from the source of it because Probably. you don't think of it as Probably. a yeah the the Jew defining name of all right. time right but it is That's probably true yeah I suppose so um, and and I didn't I mean until later on I didn't really appreciate how interesting and complicated the character was with that name so well it seems like the 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 source of all 
maybe correct me on this if there's a deeper source, but the the sheer seemingly seemingly almost uh, over the top complexity of the characters of yeah. the Old Testament and specifically right. David appears to be the the kind of the, the the source of all Jewish culture or intellectual culture that we, we as we know it. Yes and no, um, because Judaism really isn't a biblical religion. It's much more a Talmudic religion, modern Judaism, because the Bible is what the what the rabbis of the Talmud say it is. So. I think that actually, at least as great, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but a great shaper of Jewish life is the Talmud, which is something that I think um, for most of the Christian world that's uh, unappreciated or underappreciated because what they share with Judaism is the Bible and not at all the Talmud. Mm. So they're not aware how much Judaism is about the Talmud. I mean, when you look at Jewish law, the vast majority of it is what comes out of the Talmud as opposed to what comes out of the Bible. For an ignoramus such as myself, mm -hmm. I understand the Talmud as being a, as uh, rabbinical commentaries. Uh, it's is, that and more. It's rabbinical commentary, law, um, everything from medical advice. It's like a compendium of all the rabbi's thoughts and wisdom for several hundred, maybe close to a thousand years. And it precedes the Old Testament? or it, No. It's, 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 the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which is how Jews generally refer to it, um, the, well, dates the Old are, Testament right, is the, the Christian are, perspective. Exactly, it's the Christian perspective. <laughs> is generally like around 12, 1300, let's say, depending on when you want to date Abraham, the Exodus, so on. And the last book is probably around three, 400 BCE. The rabbis are roughly 100 BCE, roughly, to about 6-700 CE. The rabbis are what they, they are, the, in Hebrew, prushim, the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees are the rabbis, so they're contemporaries of Jesus, so, and, and not well treated in the New Testament, but they're actually intellectual heroes in, in, in Judaism. In Judaism. So, um, because they banished that mouthy little No, ingrate. that has nothing no, to I do with, kidding. right, actually, but that's, but that's also really important because Christians assume that Jesus plays a role in Judaism, and he doesn't really. I mean, it's like growing up, I never, ever heard about Jesus other than he was the Christian God. And I went to Jewish schools my whole life because Jesus doesn't play a role in Jewish religious history. He plays the kind of role that Muhammad plays to Christians, uh -huh. which is he's a guy, he happened to have come from the Jewish tradition, and Jews think of him, if they really study him, as basically a Jewish rabbi whose disciples made him into something that he never was. But, um, but really, the Talmud has very, very little to do with Jesus, except that it's contemporary with him. The misconception would be then, to distill it, is that uh, the expulsion of Jesus or the heresy of Jesus is some sort of big moment in Judaism, but no, it's not. No, yeah, not at all. But people and, think and that? Do people actually believe that? Though? I assume some Christians do, but no Jews do. And, yeah. and actually... Um, I mean, if you think about it, there are two things to say. One is, it's not at all clear that Jews expelled Jesus. That's, mm -hmm. that's a question in and of itself. But if that were true, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve? Right. So that's not a big moment. You know, it's not like he had thousands and thousands of disciples. But they were passionate disciples. Right, exactly. But I'm saying, the, like, the Christianity caught on after Paul, not after Jesus. Like when you think about it, well, the, gospels, the Gospels were written by people who never met Jesus. So in Jesus' own lifetime, this was part of the difficulty, I think. This is my own, part of my own theory, <laughs> is 
the reason the Christians had such a hard time with Jews is if God really walked the earth and all these people saw him and met him and didn't acknowledge him as God, there are only two choices. One is they were all completely idiotic uh -huh. or they were wicked. There's a third choice, though, and there's a fourth and a fifth. I think yeah. that the, simp the problem is in the simplicity of those two choices because we all know yeah. that people are not very good at sussing out talent. Okay, but it's God. It's not talent. Well, it's I, different. I, I, so I know. theologically, it becomes really problematic that it, Jews didn't... From a Jewish point of view, it's not problematic at all. He, he wasn't God. He wasn't God. But, I mean, <laughs> so, I, I, it's, to, me as a, to me as someone who, from a, from a Christian point of view, it's, yeah. it's not very particularly problematic because I don't think that... I don't think that the best among us today right. are recognized by a lot of people to be the best among us. I think they're they have sure a minority. I am sure that's true. Um, although Zelensky's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's yeah. is he the, is he the one we've been is he the one who may yet tarry a while? Is he the is he no. the Messiah after all no. that we've been we've neglected Jesus nope. in favor of? Okay. No. No. <laughs> the, anyway, so. But, you but know, that's Jesus. Jesus in the Jewish tradition is something that Jews spend an astonishingly small amount of time on right. compared to what Christians assume that Jews spend time on. Right. We're always assuming that, we're, that, yeah. are, that, that, that they're, they're talking about right. us. Right. Exactly. So. Uh, um, but it's a fact to me. It's, an end, it's a topic of endless fascination. You know, I, by the way, wrote a, wrote a preface. Um, Brad Young, who is an evangelical scholar, wrote a book called Jesus, the Jewish Theologian. And... In it, he parallels all the, I wrote a preface for that book, and he parallels all the teachings um, that Jesus offers that are, have parallels in rabbinic literature, i.e. in the Talmud, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting study, how much of the to... New Testament is actually also in the Talmud. Um, oh, I have to look at to that. Know, it's hard to know, you know, what came from where, because dating is such a tricky, you know, right. question. But but just in general, I mean, finding par parallels to his teachings in 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 the in the well in the uh, the scriptures and in the and in the uh, and anywhere pretty much is right. a kind of um, it's a, it's a, it seems to be an engaging exercise. I assume because I assume of the pro pro right. patterns of prophecy, right. you know, so. we like to yeah. draw them. Right. Have, have you? As a, as a, as a, like, what, what do you find to be the most challenging, apart from dealing with, you know, people who have a different view of Christ, mm -hmm. an HR, a different right. HR evaluation in the, in the prophetic yeah. uh, uh, category, uh, the, the, in terms of being, in, in, as a spiritual leader, I don't know if that's the word that you would call yourself, but that's what you are. In today, apart from the obvious one of people not believing and having to deal with their grumpy mm -hmm. uh, kind of begrudging, you know, oh, we, I, I have to have a rabbi at this thing and that thing, you know, to satisfy my, el my grandfather. Yeah. Um, what do you find to be the most challenging task in your day-to-day -day activities with your, your, with your flock? Um, honestly, uh, of late, the most challenging task has been uh, negotiating the COVID stuff. It's just been very hard. 
vaccine, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, kids don't want to be vaccinated, people who don't want to vaccinate their kids, people who do want to vaccinate their kids, people who don't want people to come into the building if they're not vaccinated, people who insist they have to be able to come into the building if they have a test. A house That's divided. Been, oh my God, yes, a house divided. There is no community so small that it can't fight within itself. It's amazing, but it's true. And so that's that's been the hardest. And I think in some ways that 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 is that is the hardest job because the people who are are essentially removed from the tradition, I generally don't engage that much with. It's the people who are engaged in the tradition who are, you know, I remember years ago I read this. I think it was called Cloister Walk by a woman named Kathleen Norris, who was a nun. And. I don't remember. I don't think she said it, but I think one of the one of the nuns in the monastery that she like lived in for a little while and wrote about said, um, you know, we don't fight over theological things. We fight because people's mothers cooked potatoes differently, <laughs> and that's what really. It's like usually it's not. I've had very very few fights over the nature of God in the course of my rabbinate, but I've had a lot of fights over vaccinations. Yeah. So I think that's what happens. Do you find it to be an immense annoyance? I know the answer yeah. is yes. But do you find it to be such, to, like, to me there's a level of annoyance where it's like, it, it's, it feels like we're talking about the wrong thing mm -hmm. versus, well, this is part of life. There's going to be disagreements. Right. There's going to be... There's going to be there's going to be bickerings, clutchings. Going I don't on. actually think of it as an annoyance that there are differences. Um, I think of it as a something between um, a, a, a pain and a tragedy at how people are expressing their differences. That's what really kills me. Like social media has has sort of rocket fueled the bad behavior of people who can't disagree in normal tones. It, it seems to have made it impossible to dis to disagree in normal tones unless you're... Some do it, though. Some people can do it, and, and, and I think other people could learn to do it, but yeah, it's that part is bad. And I always think, like, when people, when people take to social media and express themselves in such really objectionable ways, do they not think that their kids are watching them? I don't understand, especially in a religious community, you don't think that your kids are hearing the kinds of things you're saying and you think that that's a good way to instruct them to disagree with someone? It reminds me of uh, the forgetfulness of parents who are divorcing each other. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like. I've used that exact example. That's what it's like. It's like they're using their kids against each other and, as you said, they're they're like heedless of the... And I would say that, you know, growing, not growing up, earlier, in the early stages of social media, mm -hmm. which repelled me thoroughly, I was not on it. I mean, I was on Facebook as a matter of keeping in touch with people, but I didn't post, despite the fact that, given my uh, career, it make, makes right. sense. I, I avoided Twitter. All of this changed during the pandemic. I've become active on Twitter because what else is there to, to, to where else is there to exist? But... Um, but, but besides that, I, I avoided for years and years and I saw this happen at an individual level. I saw people that I like, you know, typically old, I'm talking, I'm thinking older people, um, a generation above me whom I knew to be whoever they were in normal life. And on, when they would decide to express themselves politically on Facebook, they became 
absolutely insufferable idiots, and they just didn't know what they were talking about. They felt the need to uh, pile on to whatever thing right. is yeah. coursing through their uh, their particular uh, community, and I just thought, man, it's it sucks that at the, if this keep if it keeps up, I'm just not going to even be able to tolerate. I'm not going to be able to stand this person, and it's all because of their digital presence. Now I feel like that has all been collected, that has all been institutionalized, yeah. and now that's just it's 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 from the top down. It's no longer from the bottom up. Yeah. It's the 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 word the the word is sent from the mount the mount right. to activate everyone's idiotic yep. blood cells. This is the process. This is the process of media now. Yeah. Sadly, that is largely the case. <laughs> so we have to go for the top. There's yep. no more. You can't cure them at the bottom. I mean, you can individually cure people, but it's a big yep. problem yep. somewhere in a server, you know, like or in an algorithm. Yeah. Nothing that nobody doesn't know, but somehow we're a, we seem helpless. Right. In the face I, of and it. and it's not and it's it's not getting any better, despite all the all the calls to get better, which tells you um, how much it's built into the system, and it's not just a uh, function of character. It's somehow, yeah, you know, like the social dilemma makes this fairly clear. The Netflix uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I know, yeah. Harris. So, yeah. So anyway. Yeah, we we but, went. We they premiered. In, we were at the same film festival in the before time, right yes, before the right before exactly. the pandemic yeah. in Boulder. Um, oh God. That's another thing, but but you've been dealing with this at a level that has to be an extreme strain, and I just wonder how you uh, how are you managing to uh, you know dance around the booby traps galore? Oh, I don't. I mean, sometimes they they snap. Well, I, I'm not not in the way that I express myself. I don't think, but I mean, people get very angry at me sometimes and express it. And social media, so your people right. get angry at oh, you, or yeah. just random people? Oh. oh no, both. Well, you have a big. Yes, I guess I'm assuming both. you have quite a large yeah. Uh, audience. Yeah, but also, I mean, just you know, people pile on. They see their friends getting angry, so they get angry. So I've noticed you. You're. I mean, I didn't. I didn't follow you on social media before I knew you, so I don't know the, really right. the difference. And it's now been three years of this nonsense. So to almost two years, whatever. And I've noticed how. Uh, your your every comment on social media has to be. It's, you're, you're really like trying to thread the needle just to. It's 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 such a it's a tense thing to witness. You know, <laughs> it's just like I know that you're you're just trying your best to say something, but you know, you know that it's all it's a, there's a one percent chance it's not going to result in an, some sort of social explosion. Right. I mean, and there are a couple things that I've said that. I don't care if they result in a social explosion. I just care that I say things that I actually do believe, and I say them in ways that are not unnecessarily incendiary. That's basically as much as you can do. You know, more than that, you can't it's, do. How hard must it be to not be incendiary as a Jewish commentator, though? Is that hard? Is well, it... I'm incendiary to, I mean, like, I'm very incendiary to people, for example, who are not sympathetic to Israel. They find mm. me very incendiary. But... <laughs> but I guess when I say incendiary, I mean to people whose opinion I, I respect and care about. So if they're anti-Israel, I don't really care all that much because I don't think that anything I say is going to... You don't think you, know, you can persuade people into softening their anti-Israel stance? Not on social media. No, right. No, no. Yeah. no. 
I don't. I'm not sure you can in person. I mean, maybe if it's a result of um, a lack of knowledge, uh, but that's one of the reasons why I really, even if somebody does that, I try, unless, unless their answer is snide, dismissive, cruel, I don't answer snidely, dismissively, and cruelly, because I assume, you know, people have, and I know, as I, I've said many times, I mean, I know how many things I've changed my mind about, so I have to give other people the same latitude. You know? Have you changed your mind about anything significant in these last two years, like, once since this um, season began, this plague? Uh... Let's see. Um, there are some things I don't know. Changed my mind is not quite the. I would say in the past year, even in the past several weeks, I've come to think that um, this is unrelated to the pandemic. But I've come to think that Obama's foreign policy was worse, even than I had imagined it, because I think that one. I mean, I always knew it was bad. The Syria, red line Syria. Um, when he said there was a red line and there didn't prove to be a red line. But now I see that the consequences of Russia moving into Syria, which would not have happened had the United States taken a stronger line, um, is part of what emboldened Putin to do what he's doing now. And I think that actually that Syria mistake had, had terrible long-term consequences in ways that I did not really think about before. That's nothing to do with the pandemic. That's just with the situation of the world. Um, that's one thing that I've the other thing I think I've changed my mind about is the um, the, and I, I'm sorry to say this, um, I grew up with good parents and therefore I grew up with a fairly trusting attitude towards authority. Um, and I think that my whole life I underestimated how much, and I, you see it during the pandemic, how much authority is based on um, how mu how much authority is based not I the the English language here is tripping me up I don't want to say how much all authority but how often or frequently authorities are um, are based on partial knowledge guesses and the need to make people feel like there's an authoritative answer when there isn't yeah. I've felt that much, much more keenly. I mean, I always knew it intellectually, but it's been right. so clear over the It's pandemic. been so... Well, it was clear from the beginning yeah. when it went from don't wear a mask. Right. You're killing exactly. people if you wear a mask. Right. To exactly. you're Perfect. killing people if you don't wear a mask. Perfect example. Right. To yeah. uh, the real... Racism is the real virus, right. not right. COVID. Exactly. It's like, okay. Yep. Right. That really showed... I mean, that was... When, when the... I mean, the, the, the protests, for example, the Black Lives Matter protests were, were a beautiful example if you were like an almost textbook example of my my uh, epidemiology is driven by my political concerns right. as opposed to by my sense of the spread of the disease. Right. And I don't understand. How, and the, it seems like the only way to get to, to pull that over on people is to ensure that they forget all about it tomorrow, right. which yeah. they have. They've right. forgotten. I tell, yes. I tell people about ra the racism right. is the real writer's season. They right. don't even remember no. normal true. people. Well, I mean, it is amazing how, how short people's... Memories are, in fact, I, I don't remember, I had this article once, I don't, I looked at it for a while and then, but about, uh, pun, they followed political pundits for about a year, 
and their chances of getting predictions right were no better than random. <laughs> and those were like professional pundits. So, right. so I remember. I remember yeah. there. Do you? I don't know if it was in your art. This art. This example was in your article, but I remember that Hendrik Hertzberg. I'm assuming a member of the tribe of uh, yeah. the the you know the yeah. New Yorker. Yeah, right, right. I don't know if he's still around. Yeah. I don't know if he is. I haven't heard about him for a while. But I, somebody had reprinted. This is years ago. But somebody had re reprinted his prediction. Very confident prediction mm -hmm. that. Well, I think Walter Mondale was going to win in a landslide, and he was saying, and he in the New Yorker right. he wrote about how much money he's bet on this, wow. and how he's going to make a huge killing wow. off this Walter Mondale victory that's wow. coming. It's, this is so the guy who's like, right, exactly. This 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 loquacious, uh, you know, smarty political right, right, pundit right. of years in the New Yorker. <laughs> so that's, I mean, so that that makes, I mean, in a way, that's a it's a kind of societal tragedy because. The collapse of all different kinds of authority, and I mean judges, teachers, medical professionals, governmental professionals, religious professionals, the collapse of all different kinds of authority is a real sort of crisis of institutions, because I really do think that people need institutions. Well, they need a father, they need a mother. Right. We know that. Right. And, and so... They, the the, the sur surrogates have, have proven to be very, very, very uh, uh, iffy. Mm -hmm. um, and there seems to be just like this constantly, uh, this rotating cast of surrogates right. that, 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 that is being installed from kind of whoever runs that algorithm. Well, I mean, have you put any prophetic uh, thought into or contemplations into how on earth a an actually like an actually sound basis of authority could ever be found again from well, this particular Well one of the I mean so let's go back for a moment to the modern savior of Zelensky um, one I think one of the ways that it can be done is if people see authentic personal cost I really do think so I mean one of the reasons why for example catholic priests set such authority was because people thought, this is authentic personal cost, right? A pledge of celibacy is mm -hmm. actually giving up something significant to do what you believe is right in the world. When that all collapsed in the most horrific way, so then it became... Yeah, but I, I think if people actually saw um, that kind of... Pr I, I really do believe that that's a big part of it. So if you saw politicians who... I mean, I think that it's a shame that, for example, um, that ex-presidents make a fortune off being president. I understand that they do, and they mm -hmm. take advantage of it, but it's one more example of, so, like, so, well, yeah. right, what, what was what the point the, of being president? What is, there was, again, what is it that I'm supposed to, how, why am I supposed to believe what you say? Right, then? right. You're getting $200,000 from... Exactly. Uh, to show up to, uh, you know, a bomb factory. And give so this public service, I mean, those, those people who, and unfortunately people who actually sacrifice public service, like civil servants, who really do a, like real serious work day after day, year after year, people don't know right. about. Um, so there's that. I, I think when people in authority, which is true in our society, and I certainly don't exempt myself because I'm part of this too, when people who are in positions of authority are well compensated for being in positions of authority and live good lives being in positions of authority. It makes it harder to believe the, the sincerity of their pronouncements because it doesn't seem like there's a personal cost. 
And I think that that's a big part of it. I really do. One wonders, though, how, um, you know, in what form, because one of the, another problem would be, and this applies just as much to Zelensky, which is that it's very hard. There's a lot of people who just don't buy right. what they see and hear about Zelensky from yes. those who are obviously the right. allies of Ukraine in this right. war and who are making him out to be right. uh, uh, this sort of hero. And, and it's just that they cannot trust. They, again, it's right. an authority. They don't trust that Which this I is, understand. But yeah. that's why, for example, the one, the one institution that seems to still have some authority is the military, because their sacrifice is built into the system. It's like, if, you know, if you go into a war, you better actually believe what you're doing, because you might pay with your life. And so... Even there, there's a there's less authority than there was, but there's more than other institutions because there's more on the line. I, I, that's part of it. I'm sure there's much more, but at least as an opening gambit, I'll offer you that. Yeah, yeah. the military. I mean, it, yeah, there we have we say we face the same problems where we're kind of we get the messaging from right. the authorities who are not right. on the ground, yeah. facing bullets. But uh, yeah, but, but yet I've seen, for example. So I have, I, I mean, I know some people who are in the military, and I know that, like, when people see them in their uniforms, like at airports or whatever, people are deferential, they thank them, right. they, like, still take that, because that's a sacrifice, and they recognize it, and they take it seriously. Like, so. I, I, I do. I mean, yeah, I, I, I do don't too. care what anybody, I don't care what I think of the latest war or right. the latest I feel the same way. campaign. I feel the same way. So. Yeah, it's an interesting puzzle as to how to effectively communicate disinterest and sacrifice in this climate right. where it's, it's, it's so hard to believe yeah. but from any quarter. It, it's an interesting puzzle. And I, I do believe that in various small ways it's, pos it's been possible. I mean, there are voices. There are voices. Some of them are podcasters. Some of them are wherever. Right. Where, I mean, where you, you look at and you say, Oh, I, I, I can I can see that this person is is on the level. Right. You know, you can just the, the, it fits. The equation falls into place. I agree with you. There are certain personalities that, you know, a la Mister Rogers, you right. know, the right. Mister Rogers phenomenon. You, I, I, I would have bet a lot, a lot that this man actually believed and lived what he was, and we, as we discover, in fact, he did. Yeah. So, yeah, the, yeah I think that there are some people who inspire confidence, and in that they really do believe this but but i think that that by the way that i think that's part of the reason why institutions have lost a lot of respect but certain individuals still command mm -hmm. a lot of respect um but the people that do and really believe what they say are now also going to get just as much pushback and dislike because they're going to stand strongly for something and therefore other people are going to stand strongly against it well and also other people are going to uh, I mean, to cite an obvious example here, there's a joke. We'll wrap it up here, yeah. and then I hope yeah. you don't mind me just c coming no. back like a little <laughs> person with this microphone yeah. over yeah. and over. But right. Joe Rogan's an example where he's he's obviously gained a ton of trust right. because he, he seems to be himself yeah. and on the level. And But the problem is, as soon as he runs afoul of an institutional right. narrative, yep. they activate that algorithm, and, and yes. you know people hate him without even knowing why. But, All right. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, it's okay. It'll just okay. this is going to be like those your articles in uh, in Jerusalem Post, right? Just little bite-sized pieces. I'm going to piece them together.
Nobody's in that office because oh. I don't have a secretary right now. Debbie's uh, gone. gone. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to feel about between this la the last visit and this one, the news dropped that you're leaving the synagogue. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope it's something I said. <laughs> not for not for another year. Yeah, that's not for another no, year. No, I nice. this was in the works for a very long time. How this did, is not a new. Right. I, yeah. mean, I imagine it wasn't because yeah. you're going to. A, such a distinguished. <laughs> that actually happened after I decided to. Oh, leave. after decided. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm not. I'm not leaving here to go there. I wanted to leave. I mean, it was. I told them five years ago when I signed this contract that it was my last contract. Your last five oh, years. Yeah. Five year plan. Actually, it was a seven year contract, but I'm leaving after six. You are, you're leaving after six. I can. What's the? Do you mind uh, sharing the no. some of your impulses behind? That's long enough. That's basically, I mean, it's nothing much more complicated than that. It's like I've been doing this for now 25 years. Just, you, you know, it's, yeah, I'm done. I am done. I'm done waking up every morning, having like, I mean, I go from one thing to another, to another, to another. I have three more things after this before five o'clock. And it's just exhausting. And I'm done doing it. So I'll do something else. I was just reading um, Joan Didion, one of the Joan Didion pieces about uh, Ronald Reagan, about the, the like, from her political Did you see that she's on the cover of uh, The Atlantic? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah. Chasing? Kate, Kate. Oh, by, oh, I love Kate yeah. Flanagan. She's great. I'd like to track her down she's for great. this, actually. <coughs> uh, I'm thinking about Joan. I've been reading all of her Joan Didion stuff. I've, I've known the first two books quite well, because I've read them, the Sauching and White Album. Right. Those are the two I think that are the best, but... I felt like revisiting all of them and considering the whole thing, especially mm -hmm. in terms of her spiritual uh, view of Los Angeles, yeah. which I wanted to ask you about because we didn't talk at all about L.A. and this is kind of a it's an ongoing theme of sure. mine. Um, and you you were you're sort of an outsider who came in and you're, right. you're you, you're now part yeah. of the fabric because you've been here for thirty years. I have. It's true. Can't escape now. You're in the <laughs> carpet. <laughs> What, do you have a sense of, do you, does this city mean anything to you? I'm not, <laughs> I wish I could I, capture I, the I never, I never think of, I still don't think of L.A. as home. You still don't? No, I really don't. I don't, I mean, when I, when I land on the East Coast, it feels like home. So, I, I, a lot of the people of L.A. mean something to me. But the city, as a city, I'm not, I, I never, it's romance never captured me. Like, I mean, I love, for example, I'm a huge fan of detective and mystery fiction. As am I. But L.A.'s stories don't, I mean, I don't gravitate towards them. They're not, I'm much more interested in European. Is there a, is it because you find this place just inscrutable? No, um, it's actually not that. It's, first of all, I don't live, I don't know what it is to live in L.A. I don't live in L.A. I live in Beverly Hills, Century City, Brentwood, Westwood, Bel Air. That for me, at 95% of the time I spent in L.A. is spent in those areas. They're very segregated, very wealthy. Um, they have some truly wonderful and amazing and creative and interesting people, but they don't, it doesn't feel to me like a city. 
Well, you know, they're not very neighborly places. That's also the ones true. Right. So Westwood feels a little bit like a neighborhood. I go walking every single morning. I see the same people often. But but I just, I don't know. I like cities. Downtown L.A. feels like a city, but I don't live downtown. Yeah. So I might feel differently about L.A. if I, li- I lived it downtown. But, but L.A. does not, um, it's beautiful. California, I think, is as beautiful as any place on earth, taken as a whole. Um, <clears throat> but... But no, I'm not. I'm not in L.A. Well, you know, I've ha- I have no choice because I'm born and raised here, and right. I've never been anywhere else for right. longer. Right, it's different. Than, yeah, it's different. Well, but it, you know, it's different. But it's the the challenge is the same, mm-hmm. which is, well, for one thing, I've been I was divided between east and west. So I went, you know, I grew up and went to school here, but I spent weekends always from the from the age of five on the east side of Little Armenia, and and I've had, you know, br- valley. The valley has a place to play, part part to play in my. So I kind of have a footprint that's pretty wide. But it also took me like thirty years to start to think of this place as a home, and it's been kind of the project of the last two years, ever mm. since we all got stranded, right? And ever since I moved back to Little Armenia and have been walking from there to Silver Lake to huh. Hollywood, all around. I've just been walking right. nonstop like a ghost right. detective, and I've been having to reimagine the city anew for myself and yeah. to make a claim to it mythologically. I, I, I also, I mean, that that makes sense to me that you could do that and then the city would feel different to you. I also think it's a, it's a wonderful and beautiful place to live. I am not at all complaining about L.A. Um, I'm very grateful to have lived here, um, but I, I don't have the romantic feeling about it that a lot of people do. Right. Well, you have other things to occupy your spirit, too. Yeah. You have a lot of uh, Jews to deal with. That's true. And basically, I mean, a part of it is I'm a book person. I'm not a movie person. Right. So, and L.A. is a movie city, not a book city. It's a movie city only because, you know, I don't even know if it's a movie city. Because it's not that, there aren't that many movies about no, L.A. No, but it's legacy. Right, true. Is, it's know. legacy. Although... I was shocked to discover, anytime I go to a classic Hollywood place that still exists, such as yeah. Musso and Frank, okay. where at one particular time, I don't know if there's a, a, a single establishment left in America which has had m- more of the greats of American literature spend a lot of time there mm-hmm. and thought true. there yep. as that place. Yeah. Um, if you consider the, the roster of yeah. its uh, literary uh, denizens over the, over the decades. So... You know, yes, this is all but but here's my question: mm-hmm. Do they have their pictures up? Do they celebrate the fact that they? Well, been it's there? in their website. Okay. <laughs> they don't saying, have their pictures right. up. But, but I'm saying, like yeah. in most cities, yeah, I mean, in cities in Europe, whatever, they would say, "Look, look at the great writers that have been right. in our restaurant." But in LA, it would be like, "What do you have the pictures of those old men up there for?" Right. Well, and that's what makes it to me less. You know. I say I'll tell you this though. The pro- I think they would have their pictures up if they had pictures up anywhere. They don't have pictures up anymore, in any- okay. anywhere except Maybe, for yeah. a small mom and pop place. Maybe. No pictures are Maybe. up. Maybe that's that's actually an, that's an interesting observation. But I I don't know. I mean I don't know if they celebrate. It's just no. It's yeah. well like ev- as everything these days. It's all it's all just marketing. So. Right. They'll have it in their website. They'll say that this is where uh, Chandler. Uh, this is where uh, Fitzgerald. Uh, was correcting the proofs of right. last of tycoon, uh, whatever the uh, last tycoon, the last tycoon, which he never finished. Yeah. This is where this ha- this is where this writer was doing this, and Chandler was doing this, and Hemingway was doing this, and 
bargaining with the bartender to make a better drink. There's, they have that in their website. It's all marketing, and it's all, at this point, it's not yeah. like, it, it takes someone like me going in there <coughs> and dragging someone right. with me and 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 just inf so, inflicting yes. this sort of uh, 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 so memory on them. I think what you just said is the other thing that makes me not uh, not a natural fit for L.A. Like, if you ask me what American writers I would want to know, my first answer would be Emerson. I mean, I, I also like older You're a Northeastern man. I am. I'm a Northeasterner. You're a Northeasterner. I mean, yeah, I, 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 and I like European writers better than American writers as a, as a, with some exceptions. As is the Northeastern want. Right, exactly. With some exceptions. I mean, like Nabokov and Bello... Both American writers. Nabokov is a sort well, of American writer, yeah, sort of. Yeah. But I mean, but yeah, I just I don't fit very easily into this culture, and yet there, I I don't I'm not denigrating it. I want to make that clear. I really no, I know. I treasure what is wonderful about L.A. and I don't think it's stupid and superficial or any of those things that that people who don't know the city claim. It's not true. It's just not a perfect fit for my temperament and personality. Have you been close to any of the? Have you been? Were you ever? Close to Joan, for example, Didion. No, no. Did you did you know somebody, in this case Jewish, uh, by the name of Eve Babbitts? No, I know who she was, but I didn't know okay. her. I thought maybe just no. based on the. Um, no. So I'm trying to think. Cause she's the one right. I just discovered about whatever six right. months ago. We did. I did a whole memorial of her for this um, when she died, and she's the one who captured the spirit. Like I've never seen anyone capture, and I don't think there's much written about LA that 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 lands, including played as it lays. Okay. Although I like the stuff she's written, right. she wrote before uh, uh, non-fictionally, but very little do I read about LA that lands to me but as a hers did baby. Hers did because she's also a baby of LA, and she went to Hollywood High, and she understood that the high school nature of the city, mm -hmm. if you come, if you really connect with it at a spiritual level. Um, alone, I can't think of a single other writer who who has, huh. and there aren't that many films. I mean, P Paul Thomas Anderson's films capture it. There's a few here and there, but overall, if you think of all the thousands of movies that have been set in L.A., right. almost none of them really are L.A. Huh. You know, but that's my burden to bear, not right. yours. And yeah. I don't need. I don't want to add one. You, have, <laughs> you don't want to give me another one. I don't need to give you another one. But I'm, you spent long enough yeah. here. I have to ask. I did. I have no, to ask. absolutely, absolutely. It's. I mean, it's. It's a defining. I've just. I've lived longer here now than anywhere else. So. Yeah. And as a West, I mean, the West Side. I know this part yeah. of the so well. I went to school here. All the way, it, curb your enthusiasm. I think is a good depiction of this life yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the West Side. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, do, I was gonna. I'm curious to know if, as a rabbi, you have the right to have friends. I don't mean like the million friends you have, but no, I know. Yeah. Do you have? The, do you have any friends? It depends what you mean by the right. No, um, not the one I say. I actually don't think that it. I I mean, it's a cart and horse question because I'm not someone who makes friends in any case. I was never, I always had one or two friends and I still have one or two friends. And so that's basically it. Um, I have many people that I'm close to and that I love, but if you ask me like uh, who's, and, and part of the problem with a rabbi is that um, my father told me a story years ago that he was out golfing with someone, my father golfed, um, I, I don't, but he did occasionally, and he was out golfing with some member of the congregation um, who turned to him and said, oh, if you weren't here, could I tell you a joke? 
<laughs> and I thought that captures it perfectly. Right. It's like a friend is somebody before whom all the parts of you can be expressed. Yes. And as a rabbi, that's a very, yeah. It seems it, impossible. It, it's much better if, they're, if it's people who knew you before you became a rabbi. So I have three brothers. Okay. And that actually, you know. And, and you're unguarded with them. I'm unguarded with them, yeah. We're all unguarded with each other. We're all like varying degrees of closeness at various times, but always relatively close. Always close. It's nice to have brothers. Yes, I've, it is. I've concluded. It is true. <laughs> it is true. But one or two is yeah. infinitely more than zero. If you have one or two friends yes. you can be like that with, yeah. I think that's... Um, I think that's plenty, and I'm always curious about that. I'm curious if did you share did you did you weigh in with them um, on this decision to or your kind no. of pers- no that was a- <laughs> right. weirdly um, no I'm not uh, so the 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 paradigmatic story of my life in terms of my personality that will tell you basically what I'm like is when we were when I was ten years old. My parents moved from Harrisburg to Philadelphia, with all of us, obviously. And I'm the third of four. I have two older brothers, one younger. So we came to this house that had three stories. There was a bedroom on the top story, and then there were four bedrooms on the second story. So in other words, there was a bedroom for every, all four of us. Right. It was the synagogue's house. My father said, we're going to do this in age order. Oldest brother gets first choice, second brother gets second choice. I was going to get third choice. I was sure that my oldest brother or my second brother would take this, the bedroom alone on the top floor. Why wouldn't you want to be alone? Right. But they didn't. They wanted to be with everyone else. They took the ones on the second floor. I took the one on the top floor. And to this day, I don't entirely understand why they didn't, but it was like, that's what I'm like. Is there a uh, biblical Jewish figure that you relate to in this in this need to be kind of a bit detached from the from the family, um, not from the family, not from, from the people fam- in general. I mean, every leader is like that, as far as I can see. David is like that. Moses is certainly like that. Um, that's just. I mean, that came before my being any kind of in, in any kind of leadership position. But I was always aloof. I was always somewhat isolated. I was always a bit of a hermit. As I always tell people. Well, I tell people that I'm asocial. I'm not antisocial. I'm asocial. And when they don't believe it, I say, nobody could have read as many books as I have who doesn't like to spend a lot of time alone. Right. So that's just who I am. Not a social being that way, even though I enjoy being social for a while if I'm forced to. <laughs> and then, right. And then I'm very happy to come home. But is this part of why the charm of being a rabbi is that you get that your your socializing is essentially organized for you? It's organized for you, and you also have an inbuilt plate of armor. There's a distance that is automatically given because you're the rabbi. Right. They're and, not going to pry too closely. And if you like, or if they do, you can just retreat into the professional role. So I have a public self and a private self. And if a and and there's nothing. There's nothing particularly um, there's nothing particularly annoying about a Gentile like myself coming in and asking you to explain the faith uh, the faith on on one foot no. as as I believe right. my sources in the Talmud tell me there's yes, a story. Yes, Hillel and Shammai. Uh, well, first Shammai and then Hillel. Exactly. Right. No, I mean, 
Yeah, it's not. I. It's what. It's what I do. That's my professional self. So of course, you're used to the one foot explanation yeah. of Judaism. <laughs> what is the one foot explanation? Your one foot explanation of Judaism. Um, it is an. It is perhaps the most ancient continuous tradition in the world that teaches people how to grow their souls. That's my one foot explanation. That did, that didn't even strain the foot. That was. No. That's a very economical. Yeah, how to grow the soul. How annoyed are you with Christians these days, just as a general? Depends which ones. <laughs> which I mean, ones? Look, in how, some, okay, in some ways, in some ways, Christians are infinitely, infinitely better uh, from the perspective of the Jewish tradition and Jews than at any time in history. Because, I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Christianity was a sort of close to monolithic anti-Semitic tradition. And that's not true by any means anymore. So in terms of growing the soul, you yeah. mean that it's, it's something yeah. you admire most about the Christian tradition. It's one of the things, yeah, absolutely. And also Christianity gave us some truly great gifts that Judaism could not have given, like the separation of church and state. That is a good one. Yeah. Not one that Armenians know too well because they're the, they adopted Christianity very early on as a national religion. But on the other hand, because Armenians are so old almost as old as Jews, but not quite. There's also that long memory of pre-Christian memory. Right. So there's a, there's a even though um, on paper, huh. Ar Armenians are yeah. nationally Christian, they have <laughs> a certain distance from it, from taking it, taking the church too seriously, mm -hmm. much as I, I feel there's a certain like equidistance to the Messiah that almost the Jews right. have by the yeah. Messiah being in the, in the ever, right. ever misty distance. Um, and so I think you, you, you get a lot of Protestant vibes, as they say. There's an, old, there's an old Jewish joke about a guy. He comes up to a town, and he sees this guy up in a tower. And he says, what are you doing up there? He goes, I'm the watchman. He says, for what? He goes, the Messiah. He said, wow, that job must pay a lot of money. He <laughs> says, no, it pays almost nothing. He says, well, you must get a lot of respect for it then. He goes, no, they treat me like dirt. He says, why do you do it? He goes, steady work. So, <laughs> yeah. You know? I also remember a joke that I can't, I don't remember the joke, but I remember the gist of it being, I think it's a Joseph Epstein special about yeah. how they give the village idiot a job standing guard watching, waiting for the Messiah or something. Yeah, a variety of variety things. Variety of the <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the, the endless, yeah. uh, well, which, so which Christians are annoying you right now? Because I've been annoyed lately by a certain brand of online Christians who are, Converted over the last fifteen minutes, and and are and are and are like resuscitating, uh, uh, you know, just it, it, it's. I grew up, so when I was at UCLA, the uh, annoying Christians were Calvinists who were you know evangelized just the other day and who were spreading the who had to right. bag souls uh, for the sake of their scorecard, um, and lately it seems like online. The, the the banner under which much of this is happening is Catholicism, which is curious. And so actually, for me, the only Christians that really annoy me are the ones that claim to be Jews. Oh, the Jews for is that Jews for Jesus? Jews for Jesus <laughs> or Messianic Jews? Are they even considered? I didn't even I don't even know what. As far as Judaism is concerned, I mean, halakhically, legally, you can never convert out of Judaism. Right. But practically, organically, once someone accepts Jesus, they're not Jewish. Right. So that's what bothers me because I don't see it as an ideology. I see it as a marketing scheme for approaching ignorant Jews and saying, yo, you can stay Jewish and still accept Jesus when, in fact, for 
over two thousand years, that's been the clear dividing line. Well, so what? Jews what do you? Christians. So you say it's a marketing scheme. Is it just? A, do you feel like it's a? Do you feel it the way you feel? feel one feels about dishonest. Scientology. I feel it's dishonest. It's yeah. I feel it's fraudulent. Dis Scientology is different in in my. It, it occupies a different area of my contempt. Right. From this, but I feel contempt for both. I mean, are the do these people? Did the original Jew for Jesus? Is yeah. it that they're not willing to be? Is it is this like a? They're not willing to be Christian. They want to kind they of get the best aren't of willing. Will. They either aren't willing or they realize that it's much smarter in to terms of converting Jews to call yourself Jewish. I see. And to say you can still be Jewish and just believe in Jesus. Right. So that's so but you, those are those are the only Christians that really oh, Okay, you're not sure you're not on the edge. <clears throat> I, don't, no. I mean I just want I wasn't trying to troll you into I don't I don't any. mind Christians who try to convert me. Oh okay. that's okay. I, that doesn't particularly annoy me. I mean, it annoys me if they take my time and I don't want my time taken. Right. But the idea that they would want to convert me is, doesn't, doesn't bother, bother me. You. It bothers me that Jews aren't more learned about their own traditions, so they fall for right. schemes that I think are... Have, have you speculated about um, Bob Dylan's spiritual back and no, forth? I have no idea. I don't know him nearly. I mean, no, I obviously don't know him, but I'm saying I don't know his journey nearly well enough to speculate, wouldn't say. I mean, he's sort of a yeah. Well, then I mean, there's no need to uh, get into. He's a it. restless seeker. He's a restless seeker. Yeah. I can re I, I I can relate to that. Yeah, to yeah. that. If, but again, it's always it's always about the, the it's always about the depth depth of the seeking. Right. Know? That's a question. So, um, Soloveitchik, Rabbi Soloveitchik, once uh, made a really nice. I heard it in his name. In any case, distinction between nomads and farmers. He said, people who go from tradition to tradition, they're like nomads and they try to take the best of everything, he said, and people who stay in one tradition are like farmers, but only farmers make something grow. Mm -hmm. And it's the job of the Jews to make the soul grow, right. so if you're there making you an argument perfect, about whether you should perfect be Perfect circle. Yeah, so, so as we know, the, tip, the archetypal Jewish farmer, that's yes. what Jews are, they're farmers, they stay yeah. in one place, right. never go anywhere, exactly. never wander around, just like one little garden, it's the Jewish way. Have you ever, um, I feel like my, my, my mission in these, in each of these encounters for the for this podcast, is to do what Samuel did in um, ask the right question. Mm -hmm. Like you don't ask the right question, you don't find the king, right? So I like feel like it, whether I know it, whether I have one going in or I don't, I have to at some point. I'm not done until I <laughs> until I find the right question that'll suss out the king, and I don't know what that is yet in this in this encounter uh, in these series of encounters. But I have to keep trying until I, until I, until I have. Well, how, it. how, where are we in the? This is number three of a, the, the, the previous and two. How long do they two usually? Oh, my, they go pretty long, so I might have to come back, mm -hmm. if you don't mind. I might have to come back for right. one more. Have you? Do you ever ask yourself questions such as, what are the? I, this is a question I ask myself about my particular tribe. What yeah. are the role? What is the role? The, the role of the Jews on this earth. Not Jude, it's different from the question I asked about Judaism, one foot. Right. And just in terms of, you know, your personal, I guess, it's more like it's just a speculation. Um, it's an arrogant question. I mean, M Maurice Samuel, who was a writer, a Jewish writer, and he said um, the Jews won't give up until they, and it's as if the Jewish soul said, I won't give up until I figure, what this is, figure out what this is all about. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to assign a single mission 
to the Jewish people, but I suppose um, if you could, it would be the idea that there is one, um, there is, first of all, one God, but also that there is, as a result, a true eth objective ethical fabric built into the world and the fact that it's very difficult sometimes to know what is right doesn't mean that there isn't a right and a wrong and there really is a right and a wrong and it's not just a human contrivance objectivity of mora moral moral objectivity, moral objectivity. is it's the role of the jews to remind people that people, there, yes that there is a code that there is something right that there is something about the world that makes certain things right and wrong yeah to be a witness to be a witness to that to be a witness to that. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the role of the Jewish people historically has been to be a witness. Yeah. Often a witness to their own. Yes, often a witness to their own. Yeah. Is there a sense in which, I mean, practically in, in this in the contemporary world, you encounter someone and you think to yourself, this per person's problem, the concept of, of, of a one God, just to get, because it's such an abstract concept in right. a sense, it, it just to, on an everyday level, yeah. whereas objective morality is, is much more concrete. <coughs> and so I, I, I wonder in which way that the monotheistic aspect, not theologically, mm -hmm. we understand all that, but as a matter of practical... I would say two things. One is, if there's one God, then the single most important statement I think that the, the Jewish tradition makes is that every human being is in God's image. If there's one God, <clears throat> then every person is worthy of, uh, of, of kindness, of decency, of, uh, of respect. Of They may forfeit it at some point, but they are in the image of God, and therefore all human beings also are related to each other. Um, I mean, the fact that I share <clears throat> DNA with someone doesn't morally obligate me to them, I don't think. But the fact that they, we're both children of the same parent does. So that seems to me to be the great legacy of Judaism to the world. And when you, I mean, when you see someone with problems and you think to the and you think to yourself, this this is a person who has too many masters. Is this a is that is that a kind of thought? For some for some people, it depends what the problem is. You know. Right. No. Of course. Right. I mean, one yeah. that would might occur right. to your to your mind. Yeah. You connect it to the concept. Because, and, and <clears throat> sorry, I think in the modern world, there is a tremendous proliferation of masters. People have a hard time figuring out what it is that they value because so many different value systems are so seductively presented to them one after the other after the other. So it becomes difficult then to be fixed or focused or to have a character instead of a personality. A character instead of a personality. Um, because a personality is sort of a... Shifting, can shifting. be shifting, right, exactly. It's a performance. Right, it's much more performative. Yeah. Do you find a particular set of false... Um, I mean, you know, there's the obvious answer that we all, we all mm -hmm. think of when we think of L.A., but I'm wondering, <coughs> given, given where you are, all these years, have you found a particularly seductive false god? Yes. Or, I mean, 
Other than money? Other Well, <laughs> I guess nothing's other than anything, but, yeah. you know. One of the things that I just, I really, I grew up in a home where money was literally never spoken about, ever. Never really thought about money. <clears throat> um, we certainly, certainly were not wealthy, but we were fine, and I just never thought about it. Um, the only conversation I ever remember my father having with me about money, ever, was at one point he said to me, I just hope so that you. I just hope you have enough money so you don't have to stay up at night worrying about how to pay the bills. Only thing I ever remember his saying. <clears throat> I discovered when I moved into a community that had a lot of money, that money is never just about money. It's the most symbolically complicated thing in the world, and it it's so many other things. It's status. It's ego. It's power. It's so many things, um, and so. It's very hard since it's such a fungible commodity just <clears throat> in terms of like value systems and esteem and so on. I think it's very hard to escape as in our society as, uh, as something to worship. Certainly here, but not only here. I mean, L.A. is one of the capitals of that, but there are, it, it's in good company. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's in good company. I also notice a um, concomitant uh, uh, I guess, d demon, which, which is self-pity, which seems to kind of walk hand-in-hand hand with the money one I, I, quite often. I don't know if that... Well, these days, these days actually, um, there is a tremendous social power to victimhood, and everybody gets in on the game. So <clears throat> victimhood is a kind of self-pity. Um, yeah. Now, sometimes there are genuine victims, so it's not like there are no victims. But right. uh, there are also genuine victims who need not feel victimhood. Right. It right. doesn't help them just because they're. Well, that's victims. part of part of the paradox of all of this is, it's better if you think of yourself as an agent. It's better for your life, and yet, it's not good if society doesn't acknowledge and recognize the people who've been victimized. So it's right. a weird, you know, both are true. And so. Thank God there are so many middlemen willing to pop exactly. up and recognize and our pains for us. Isn't that right. wonderful? Exactly so. Nothing yep. can go wrong. Nope. Oh, Lord. Um, so you're leaving the synagogue. So is there, a, is, there a, is there a subject you are looking forward to pursuing that you haven't had time to pursue now that you'll have a, I mean, once you're out of here on your... I, there are, <clears throat> there are a number of things I'm thinking about writing, but I don't know yet exactly, you know, we'll see, we will see. In some ways, there is freedom from and freedom to. Leaving the synagogue is huge in the freedom from category. The freedom to category, yet I haven't exactly determined. I was going to say you're going to be free from dealing with Armenians in L.A., but now you're going... That's a very small... I mean, <laughs> that's hardly... That, that doesn't even register on the... Um, but I, I am but you free... you are going to Boston. I'm free, from, I'm free from a full calendar. I'm free from doing what rabbis do, which is living other people's lives. Right, living with other people's lives. Not living with. Living, living other people's other lives. People doing their weddings, their funerals, their bar and bat mitzvahs, their major events. How their, do you do it? Because it's a great privilege and it's a wonderful thing. But at a certain point, at least for me, yeah. I, I want to stop. I have all these, um, you know, so these basic, basic, basic questions just 
from hearing you say this, and I think 30 years of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, weddings, funerals, divorces, and whatever. And have you found, have you, apart from the accumulating kind of, you know, effect they all would have on one, have you found, were you ever, were you ever, did you ever felt like there was an intervention on, on, on to you from one of these ceremonies that you had to conduct dutifully? I, I don't know if I'm phrasing this properly, but did, 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 did one of these experiences doing a, a rabbinical right. duty like kind of shatter your, you in some way early on, middle? Oh, I think many, there were many that profoundly affected me, sure. Yeah, there were. And on that note. Not on that note. <laughs> I, I, I have a 215. Yeah, you have a 215. <laughs> yeah. Then on to the next. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know. And in some ways, by the way, it gets harder because as you know people and you get older, you know, it's like I used to bury strangers. Now I bury people yeah, that I'm close with. Right. So well, that's right. where it gets. All right. I'm going to examine and I'll, and okay. I'll schedule a return. Okay. Right, Thank you. to our previous visits in this ballet and so I think I know what I think I know the theme that you want to hit that I want to hit which, which is? is authority okay. um, by uh, by the by uh, we in the second visit we discussed we, we kind of got into the question of authority and, and I, you you brought up how trust in the, there's a there's a complete vacancy of trust in any kind of authority right, right. now um, I brought up how the the question of the algorithms and how they need to be toppled from the top a few weeks later Elon Musk made a bid to buy Twitter and I think that was an interesting event in human history that we don't need to elaborate on now because it's not going to culminate for a few months but the instant he made that bid you saw people rise up, wealthy people, you know, of influence suddenly, including Jack Dorsey, rise up and suddenly find a spine in relation to this, to the idea of salvaging free speech. Right. Um, there was a certain authority for that for whatever reason, Mr. Musk exuded and, and earned the trust of, I think, people whose brains are in the right place, in my opinion. It was an interesting illustration that happened three weeks after we met and, and discussed that. And I got to thinking about, I mean, you're an authority. That is your vocation is to be a religious authority. And I wanted to know first when it is that you felt like you had authority as a, as a man. I mean, because there had to be a, some sort of struggle with your father at some point. It wasn't actually so much with my father. It was much more with the title rabbi. With the title? Yeah. Because when you become a rabbi, people then ask you questions as though you can answer them. And, um, and so in fact, sometimes I would call my father and say, how do you respond to something like this? But the, 
sense of um, almost imposter hood or impostorship yeah. that one feels, and I can't imagine everyone doesn't feel this at a certain point when they're invested with some kind of authority, um, that people who were much older than I was were asking me for life advice and I was supposed to be able to answer them. Um, that's something that I think authentically thoughtful people struggle with forever and people who assume authority unthinkingly or too dogmatically I distrust because that kind of authority seems to me um, suspicious. So I, I didn't so much, I don't, I'm not as aware of struggling about authority with my father as I am very much aware of struggling with it just because of the position I was given. Well, okay, so how old were you when you first had help? When I was ordained, I was probably 28. 20, it's very yeah. young. Yeah. And I, I wrote a book before I, I mean, my first position was uh, an academic one. I had a fellowship, so I wrote a book. Um, and it's easier in some ways to assume authority in front of a computer than it is in front of a person. So, um, and, but when I came to a synagogue or when I had to do life cycle events, that was a much more profound struggle with. Can you possibly identify, I kind of jumped the gun by bringing up your father because the, real the, the, the first question to me is how and when, but also specifically how yeah. you started to feel like the authority that you presented yeah. for people was legitimate. It, you had you were it was coming from a place where you felt it was the right thing for them to do to listen to you right not merely because you are reciting the catechism of your faith but um, I I'm not sure that there was a moment but I think gradually I came to trust myself more and more and also was aware of times that I made mistakes so um, I don't think I ever have perfect trust in myself, um, but almost like a therapist, because a lot of what I do overlaps with that, I tended to feel like I was seeing things reasonably clearly, um, and uh, that compared to, compared both to what I thought I should be doing and compared to um, the expectations that my congregants had, I thought I was in, on reasonable ground. But, but it, well, how, how, what point of the, what point in the timeline are we when you kind of had this sense um, under your feet? I don't know exactly. I think it, it could, because it varies for different questions at different times. There were some things I felt very confident to answer. There were other things I didn't feel confident to answer. For me, at least, it wasn't a, uh, it was an organic process. Over the years, I got more and more and more certain. And as I saw that my judgments, I saw the way in which my judgments were either validated or where I was wrong, I got more. Was it? Was there a specific, can you, can you identify a category of the type of judgments where you were kind of, uh, you know, felt out of your depth at, at first? I'm assuming they yeah. relate to family. Deathbed. No, deathbed, deathbed stuff, usually. Death. Yeah, exactly. Um, when people were, and sometimes, sometimes marriage and kids. I mean, anything that kids? was profoundly, what's that? Do you have kids? I have one. You have one. Okay, so you have um, one. Anything that was profoundly uh, impactful and important, 
and would make a real difference in someone's life. I remember the first time, for example, that somebody came to me and they were, uh, and they were abused. It was a battered woman. And the first thing I did was call a psychiatrist in the congregation. And he said to me, the important thing to know is nothing you say will make any difference. That was very helpful, actually. Right. Um, because bef had I not had heard that, I might have thought, if you only say this, she'll leave her husband. And if she doesn't leave her husband, it's your failure. Um, right. You, you thought, yeah, you felt like everything, you felt like you were, you were in charge of a chess boat. Right, where, exactly, right. I was the authority. And you were So, no, I was not. You were a mere vessel of right. space. Exactly, exactly. And so that, that was helpful. Um, but I, I think, look, I, I don't think that anybody gets this right all the time at any age. So oh, I'm, I'm, I don't think that you should feel a complete, like, certainty in your authority because... Well, then you're, uh, you're, you're high on your own supply if you have Right, exactly. So. But there definitely appears to me to be a... I mean, this comes time and again in, this, in, in your book about David. Uh, if, like, right. there's this recurring theme of him, the question of what, what does he feel, how much does right. he feel, how much is he high in his own supply, how much right. does he feel a vessel of God, and how much yes. does he, and so on, and of his people. Right. And uh, it comes and goes, and that's what makes it such a him such a fascinating character. Right. Others are far more rigid in their feelings yeah. of either doubt or, or authority. Right. Um, and in his case, there's to me, like, I, I'm always looking at, I've always, you know, I've had this bias against the therapeutic Freudian version of the world just because we're so inundated with it generally. But ultimately, and I've been doing now 15 of these uh, this is the 15th of the of this and time and again when I'm digging deep with someone and we are finding ourselves in the uh, the nooks and crannies of their biography we return to a relationship with the parents mm -hmm. um, and inevitably that 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 kind of like that sets a that sets a, a figure and a shape to their lives that cracks through the rest of it. I think that's true. I think it's also one of those questions where um, your relationship to your parents are so comprehensive that almost any way you turn out, you'll be able to trace it in one way or another to parents. Right. Um, I One of the reasons, I think, why I have a greater trust of authority than most people will either have or at least will admit to is because I had parents whose authority was trustworthy. Right. And that that's a huge that is a huge gift in this world. Did you not in any way or in any important way, I guess, it's always uh, dis, yeah. did like recoil or from having a rabbi as a father or a father right. who's a rabbi, it feels like it feels like it might be onerous, especially yeah. if you have that streak of Jewish rebellion. It was in you. it was definitely onerous. And no question about it. It was even more onerous for my daughter because I was one of four boys and she's an only child. So for her, it was really onerous because all this expectation was heaped on her head. Um, and, and she had no desire to have it heaped on her head. Um, for me, it was somewhat onerous, but, but just, and I think this is a little bit true with her, but more with me, it had both. It, had, it was something you had special status like, I saw my father talked and all the other fathers listened. That was pretty cool. Um, you never resented this power that he had. 
no, I don't think so. Only because he was so he was very difficult to resent. He was very warm. He was very kind. He wasn't he wasn't like that at home. Right. So um, and and he was also uh, undogmatic. Like he, you know, uh, there were moments when we did things that upset him. Um, but on the whole, eh, no, I don't think, I, and I think I, I might be wrong, but I think my daughter would say pretty much the same thing. It's not that she resents me. It's that she resents the position that made everybody else expect certain things that well, were not right. who she was. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure that if I did, you know, a deep psychotherapeutic dive, I could find things about both my parents, um, my mother, maybe even more than my father, that were, you know, character altering. Mm -hmm. um, but when I look at them as an adult, I think they did the best they could, and I think they did reasonably well. So. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Uh, the not to get psychoanalytic, but I feel like the, the problem with psychoanalysis is when it becomes a blame game, when it becomes a drug of self-pity, and when it becomes this, you go every single week to imbibe this drug with a, with a trip sitter, and that's when it becomes a problem. I feel like when you can keep it into, in a realm of somewhat of, um, disembodied observation of simply things you didn't, you were too self-involved and too... Uh, sheepish to ever confront before because it's not pleasant to think right. about your parents in such a deep way. We kind of want to just yeah. make our own path, clear the clear the cobwebs. But I do find that it can be edifying to. I mean, this is something I've been doing a lot of only in the last two years. Darkness, uh -huh. um, so I I feel entitled to inflict it upon other people for only for that reason because I feel like it can be done yeah. without the making it a without blaming because there's there was going to be one trauma or another yes. or not lack of it there wasn't going to be it's not you're, you, there, no, you it's, <laughs> it's Philip Larkin's poem this be the verse yes exactly they yeah. fuck you up your mom and dad they right. do not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some and special just, just for, for you, you. Yeah. but they were fucked up in their day yeah. right by by fools in old style hats and coats yeah. who half the time were soppy stern mm -hmm. and half at one another's throats. Yeah. Man hands on, on misery, misery to man. man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can. And don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> I'm doing, the last part is, <laughs> is unfortunately been assigned um, to me. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the beginning of that is true, which is, which is one of the things that I say to parents, and that is it doesn't matter what you do there will be things. No. And the reason that there will be things is not only because you have all the limitations of being a human being, but because you cannot know in advance what the 15-year-old child will look back and feel that he or she needed. And that's why Winnicott's formulation is so beautiful of being the good enough parent. The good enough parent. That if you keep your child safe right. and loved and cared for. Fed. And fed. Yeah. Then... That's good enough, and and that doesn't mean it, it's perfect. But there is no perfect parenting, and and you have to for, be a little self forgiving about uh, about the inevitable bends and turns that yeah. character takes that will subsequently be blamed on you. 
Yeah, especially if they have, uh, especially if little fairies fly into their ear and tell them right, at some point. You know? yes. One of the ways you learn this, the, the shortcomings of your own family is by other people seeing it. And they say, don't you know that your dad always does this? And you go, actually, no, I, I never realized that. But yeah, you're right. It does do that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how people can remain blind to the most obvious things forever. Absolutely. Unless yes. some big mouth comes no along. No question about it. But but you know the the curious the the di the difference between you and the average person is that you became first of all you did you 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 entered your father's business yes and the business is one of being a, an authority right, right. specifically yep. and so anyone who becomes a father from a son has to, is that's a, that's a that's a, a an arc of authority but right. it's a double arc of authority if you're becoming a religious leader right. of your community much as your father was and that's why I was just I was you know I was feeling like you had all these uh, you had all uh, many different levels to play in this particular so, game I mean I, I'm sure that there are I'm sure that if we talked about it long enough that I would think of more levels but strangely enough um, I don't think about myself very much um, I discover myself through talking but I'm not introspective I never sit alone and just think about me um, you like writing? I don't know why. Well, it's sim it, it it brings to mind. I've been reading um, before my next my next visit is with David Horowitz, and I've been reading his. Have you read his meditations on mortality? Uh, I might have. It sounds familiar. Well, he he, he wrote, wrote it a while ago. He wrote right? it a while ago, but he yeah, recently he recently released it in a book form, all of them together, okay. plus newer so stuff no. so called Mortality no. and okay. Faith. Yeah. So I'm reading. I'm rereading yeah. the old parts and. Yeah together with the new stuff and um, um, I mean of course his his, uh, his story is fascinating but what I was kind of, he was talking he's he's writing a lot about Christopher Hitchens whom you also right. yeah. kn knew yeah. somewhat well yes. quite well reasonably very well, well. reasonably well right yeah. well what impresses me about Christopher Hitchens is that I don't think he thought about himself either very much either. I don't think so either I remember reading once when I was a kid William Buckley saying I'm not introspective and I thought what do you mean you're not introspective and people sometimes mistake eloquent and articulate right. or, or learned or intellectual for introspective. But I realized at a certain point, oh my God, I'm not introspective either. That is, I know people who will sit there and think about their lives, things they should have done, didn't do, what they should do next, how they fit in and so on. I, I'm just, I don't work that way. You're go, go, go. I am almost the way that I buy a car. I was just discussing this the other day. So I, I know someone who... When she buys a car, she has to drive every car 30 times, and she has to adjust the seat a 1,000 times because she knows she's so sensitive that if she buys a car and a month from now she doesn't like it, it'll torture her, yeah. kill her. Every time she gets in, she'll think, ah, this isn't right about the car. Right. Whereas I have the blessing of being insensitive, so if I don't like the car that I'm driving, I won't pay that much attention to it. Right, you'll just you'll you'll. I like yeah. this is a car. You'll, this is a car. You right. You'll, you're... So the same thing here. Um, I think about human beings, and I think about life, but I don't think about me so much. So I use other people as mirrors. That is, I, I learn more about how I work from other people than I do from myself. Well, you have endless amounts of people to. I do, and also from expression. By the way, I'm very much in the category of the E.M. Forster quote, um, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? Right. And sometimes I say things and I go, I didn't know I, I thought that. But right. 
Well, that's, I think, to some degree, all writing is a way of discovering what you actually think. I think, think. that's true, yeah. Until you, because that's right. the words give, it, give you a different right. presentation of your thoughts right. than you've ever had in, as they swim around. But when it comes to someone like Christopher Hitchens, who is not a rabbi, although right. in a way he is, you could say, um, of a kind. He's a rabbi of, of right. a certain yeah. British, uh, British uh, a, a warrior, verbal warrior type. Yes. But he had this extremely traumatic incident in his life early yeah. on, which clearly, clearly marked him in, in a way that made it absolutely out of the question that he should ever believe in God right. by his own form of way of thinking. And I, 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 I feel that it's, it's remarkable that for all the millions of words he wrote and spoke. He never really spoke about that. Right? Never. I know. And and the, and like the most important thing in his life. Right. And when he talks about, you know, how he could never be his friend Martin Amos or right. Salman Rushdie, as if Rushdie's, you know, but whatever he, you know, how he talked about he could never be that literary or fi write fiction or anything. Well, of course not. If he's not going to, conf if he wasn't willing to right. unravel what that, what happened to his yeah. mom, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I've been thinking about this because I'm, I'm going to ask. I, I mean, you've so you've debated with Chris over. I saw one of the debates on YouTube. Right. There's several of them, probably. Yeah. He was sloshed. I could smell his breath <laughs> from 10 years away. Yeah, he would. On one of them, he was particularly. But um, and others, he was the differing degrees. But uh, but he was still. He was. Yeah. I mean, still and, remarkably uh, acute. Well, no, he was. Yeah. But he was, you know, he, he was like you were making a even-handed calm yeah, point right. and then he was just bar barreling in right. as he did with these god yeah. debates where you yeah. were just you know yeah. blah, 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 blah. and it's just like okay i mean i got it was a tiresome act when it came to i don't know i feel like if you're a grown man the whole atheism craze of the of the 2000s was sort of a yeah it was mm, a passing you know it was a passing entertainment in a way very passing um, and yeah. i don't not so entertaining for me okay. <laughs> but i guess you got yeah. some, you got to enjoy yeah, exactly. it because you get on stage with i enjoyed it I mean, I felt like it was a, it was, it was sort of a, an invention of. It was sort of a, a coping mechanism for people couldn't really, t couldn't really criticize Islam. Yes. Which is what everyone. Which was is trying, clearly what to Sam do. Harris. Yeah. Like that's what, what motivated the end of faith. I mean, nine eleven, really kicked off the atheism, the new atheism the new phase atheism. for for obvious reasons because they said this is what faith does. Then you can't just say, you know, we don't like this form of faith. You have to say we don't like all faith. We don't all like, yeah, we can't just say, we can't just right. focus about the one that we actually are worried right. about. We right. have to equ equivocate all of them, yes. which is the same thing they do every time, yeah. including with politics. Right. Exactly. Like with wokeness and stuff. And exactly. It's a bit tiresome so. if you're a grown man to mm -hmm. be equivocating in such a way. But it's, it's very, very hard to get around in public discourse. It just is. Well, I can't, I mean... Well, it also, and there was a contributing factor was the Catholic uh, abuse scandal, which sort right. of exploded yes. around the same time and gave Absolutely. everyone an excuse to group right. all the Absolutely. Abrahamic religions yes. onto the same shelf. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you, <laughs> I don't, I, disregarding yourself and just looking out at the scene, um, how do you feel like or hope for authority to be because i agree with you that i mean i'm as much of a anti-authoritarian as i am and have always been i all i i i also recognize the importance of authority i recognize the importance of the authorial voice which right. is an authority 
Right. If you don't have a thought, like, I, I mean, anytime you have a, you have written a commanding sentence on a page, uh, presented a commanding series right. of images, you have, you know, presented authority. So part of, I, I really think a big part of this is that transparency delegitimates authority because authority got used to being authority in part by hiding its process. And so science would say, this is what science has found. But now we discover, as science becomes more transparent, and you hear different scientists weigh in on different things, and there's greater coverage, that science is not so monolithic and doesn't advance so easily. And today, this, you know, today, um, masking is good and tomorrow masking is bad and there are studies and conflicting studies and so people choose other means um, usually political means to to line up on different sides of questions that shouldn't be political questions and so I don't think that people are really people haven't abandoned authority they've shifted authorities so the same people who say I don't believe in the authority of the church and I don't believe in the authority of politicians and I don't believe in the authority of science They'll say, but I really, if you listen to them, their views are straight down the line, either right or left. Right. So it's very, and, and most of the things that we believe we have to take on authority, we don't have a choice. I take it on authority that, that the, the sun goes around the moon, uh, that the earth goes around the sun. I mean, I suppose it could be, it can be proved, more or less, but I don't prove it. I take it on authority. Right. I take it on authority that, uh, I don't know, that lead is bad for you. Right. You shouldn't ingest it. I mean, the vast majority of things that we think about in the world, I take it sort of on authority and on trust that when I push the gas pedal, the car is going to go. It's not because I understand how it works. I don't really know the combustion engine. Yeah. But, so we trust a lot of authority, even as we say we're anti-authoritarian. We do, and it's true that um, we unconsciously trust all kinds of authority yeah. because you see it in the pro in the, in right. the outcomes. Although I, it, it's all it's almost it's almost hard in the current landscape to even call it unconscious trust of authority, rather than just uh, you know people just not putting any kind of pieces together whatsoever and right. going moment by moment. Yeah. impression by impression with no logical connection between one belief or right. one one conviction and the other and 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 which is different I think than pre-social media where yes we had a certain set of authorities if it wasn't if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, this one it was that one if it wasn't that one it was the rationalists or the you know Christian well we are not a f philosophical people no we're know. not yeah um, so but it, but yeah, authority is a big issue, I think, in America, and it's, um, and I think that especially authority in public trust, politics, um, different kinds of expertise, is something that has suffered enormously over the past decades, and and now in the Supreme Court, which used to be one of the last places where people actually had a relatively high you know, score of trust, that too has been diminished. Well, it's been diminished because it turns out that if they will leak, they will right. leak a decision yeah. that they don't, right. that, right. that uh, well, some somebody will like. leak. Somebody yeah. will leak a decision from the one place you could trust never to be pressured right. by, right, politics. By, by, yeah, by the humors of the public. Right. And I mean, I'm not, you know, 
when we, I, I feel like before, before the league, the, fa the fact of the matter is that a huge segment of this population has been, and we know exactly which side they're on, has been already trained to disregard any sort of principled um, sense of politics. It's all just, do the outcomes suit me? Do the outcomes suit what I'm supposed, what's supposed to be the, the right thing of the moment? And if they don't, they must be, it must be racist. Or I, like, think you, I think you could, if you eliminate the word racist, I think you could make that argument, though, about both sides. You can, but it's not, it's, not it's not equivalent. Because I do believe that there is a certain regard for the Constitution and for the Supreme Court and for these ba basic things. Yes Such that no. packing the court is not going to be the No, packing the court slogan. isn't, but blocking, but blocking a, a Supreme Court nominee for years so that you can get your own. Is. Well, that's true, but so then that's you, know, why I say, you point to Robert Bork being blocked and that. Da, 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 that's my point. Thing. My yeah. point is the the general prevailing ethos is my goals are more important than the process. And maybe there's a shade stronger or a shade less strong on one side than on the other, but it is a deep societal problem in general, which is that um, I don't see a great deal. I mean, look, you saw this. You saw this in the election. The election was stolen. That's what one side says. That's mm -hmm. what the right says. But it's not. But it's not like the left doesn't make similar noises at different times. Not as resolutely, certainly, and not as damagingly as Trump did. But there was a time in American history when Nixon, who had a really good case that the election was stolen, right. he really did. But he would never. Uh, he wouldn't damage the country that way. Right. So I think on on right and on the left. The process has become subordinate to my goals, and and that's a dangerous tendency. And before the election was stolen, and and the, by the way, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean before the election was yeah. stolen, a story about one of the main candidates was censored, right? And another exactly. main, and, uh, and the incumbent but, and candidate for, was deplatformed exactly, on the night of the election for, for exactly <laughs> the same reason, though. Right. Well, the yeah, point is, was, the point is, you have to. I think you have to think bigger than right and left, and look at the underlying reasons. And the underlying reasons are that Americans, the way the American system is structured, it rewards short-term incentives and not long-term. And process is a long-term goal. So each side is going to ruin the filibuster right. when, in fact, it's going to come back and bite them when they're done. But long-term incentives would encourage a different kind of politics. We don't do right. that we don't very have, well. There's no incentive. We don't do that very well. So, right. so yes, today it may be the left. Tomorrow it can be the right. I don't think that either side has a monopoly on virtue. No, certainly um, not. And, and I think that both of them, in different ways, suffer from the underlying structures that make it, that make our politics problematic, um, even though, obviously, many of the concerns that you express uh, about the progressive left I share. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that there, there, there isn't a lot of... Uh uh, brown stuff on the hands of right. the right or any of these sides and and you know all one has to do is revisit particular periods of history and i don't i just don't think that they're equivalent necessarily but they're there the, right. there are crimes right. everywhere i don't right. i don't they're not all equal right but that, they are okay crimes. but even so are given that they are not equivalent the question then is is there an underlying cause that moves both sides to do bad things even if one side is doing more bad things right, right. now than the other and the underlying cause is there is there is profit and power to be had in the very moment. That's a big part of it. Versus the that looking at the long term, yeah. right? Um, and and whatever structure we have, we are supposed to have to counteract 
the hustle on, on the main chance of the moment that'll yeah. cash in on whatever opportunity there is right. uh, is not obviously working well enough if something like a Supreme Court is packed. You yes. know, I don't expect it to happen, by the way, because I do think we're right. strong enough to not go that direction from either side. But but still, things things of a minor... I mean, the censorship of the last decade has taken me to a whole new level of concern that I never thought I'd find myself in as an American. Well, part, part of it is also the, um, the struggle between the legitimate acknowledgement of someone as a victim and the empowerment of victimhood. Right. That is, yes, so, somebody can be a victim, and that's a terrible thing. But as soon as you get the status of a victim... If it gives you power, then human beings being human beings, they're going to increase. Their they're power. going to try right. Right, to which define is, themselves as victims right. in every which way. Well, what, what, and what's the solution to that puzzle? Because how do you? It, it's it's always seemed to me to err on the side of, uh, yeah. At, at least from a personal perspective, like if I were the wronged one, mm -hmm. I believe the lesson to me from all manners of authority I trust would be to somehow forget it and well the the paradox of victimhood i think is that victimhood can have real and serious consequences on your being and character and so on and so forth but using it as an identity is destructive of your life and your character so to acknowledge what the consequences are and then to redefine yourself as somebody who can overcome them Difficult as that is, seems to me to be the only, the only healthy um, approach. It's kind of like the, the Viktor Frankl man's search for meaning approach. And here's a guy in a concentration camp who says, the one thing that I can control is how I react to what happens to me. And but that's and that Christopher takes Hitchens a lot reacted by going on a holy crusade, uh, yeah. a holy atheist crusade for the rest of his life. Right. Much right. It takes a lot of work to do that right. So, and, and right now, as you know, we're, we are very much in this cycle of the victim gets to shout down the, the person who says something that they feel... Even though the victims have all the power. Is offense. They don't have all the power. No, they have a lot of power. They have a lot, yeah. They have a lot they of have power. They have the balance of they power. They have a lot of power. In certain, in certain parts of society, yes. Well, I mean in the self-proclaimed victims, no. yeah. obviously, because in that's all... In other parts of society, no. It's, it's a complicated... It's definitely a complicated equation, no question about it. Um, but uh, but I also think that it's uh, yeah, it's a deep societal problem that we valorize victimhood. Does it, does this problem in any way connect with the theme of eroded authority? Because it seems like there is a connection. Yes. Yeah, because it's the authorities that victimize us, us being the self-proclaimed victims. It's always the, you know, it's the dominant group, the authorities, the people who run things, so on and so right, forth. The, the establishment, the, right, the exactly. man. The establishment, the man. The so, yeah, it does tie together, and therefore we don't trust them. Um, which, you know, I mean, there are so many, there are so many aspects to this problem, it's almost, no, it's almost endless. But, yeah, that, that, it definitely all ties together. Are you in, do you have a hand in selecting who's going to succeed you here? Yes and no, in the sense that um, I hired uh, an assistant rabbi about 11 years ago as an associate, first as a, as rather as an intern, then she became my assistant rabbi, 
Um, she's married to a rabbi who was in another synagogue. We brought him over so that he would be here too. He's been here for about eight years, and the two of them are going to succeed me, which I very much wanted, but I didn't get to choose. The synagogue had to choose. Okay. But the synagogue chose them. Okay. I'm wondering if they're only because this is, this is of course, the final right. chapter of your book on David is his succession, is right. the drama of his succession. Yes. We're talking right now about, I mean, the one thing about American right. politics that I only recently, I think, appreciated is if you were to take everything away and if you were to even, even ignore the what causes it, peaceful succession is... right. And, and, and it has its limits, too. It's because the what sine qua non if, if dicta- successful, right. Right. What if, you know. So I'm very proud of the fact that I have groomed successors. I really am. I'm very proud of it. And, yeah, and, you, and, and you're good with the, the choice, which is Oh, nice. I think they're wonderful. I really think they're wonderful. So. I mean, have you, have you, I guess, to bring it back to your father, just because there's the question of succession also meets every family... And I'm and I'm wondering if without I mean not to not without prying but was there ever was it you know there is a book called the new rabbi I thought I had it on my shelf I don't see it there um, when my father retired from his congregation a journalist Stephen Freed written he's written a bunch of books um, decided he was going to follow my father's footsteps as he retired. And I remember he came to me and he said, I want to interview you for this book. And I said, I'm happy to interview with you, but th- what a boring book. Who's going to be interested in the retiring rabbi? Turns out the synagogue blew up, and now every synagogue, churches, so on, they all read this book to, ta- to learn about succession. Oh, um, interesting. But one thing that never, ever, ever occurred to me was to succeed my father in his synagogue. Um, no, I was already out here, and I was already at Sinai when he retired. Uh, but anyway, if you're interested, and it's actually, it is a remarkably entertaining book, considering the subject. It's called The New Rabbi. The New Rabbi. Stephen Freed. Yeah, if I had my copy, I would give it to you, but I must have given it away already. I'll find it, because... Oh, it's on Amazon. It's, yeah, yeah. The New Rabbi. Yeah. And you so, don't... But I never considered going back. No, I know, I know. I'm speaking all, in right. kind of all in the familial, yeah. the larger yeah. sense, where at some point, because of health or because of uh, whatever... Yeah. Fathers have to manage their own dec- their own succession, yeah. and that's to the to the. Deg- I mean, I just watched Gaspar Noe's Vortex. I don't know if you've heard of this film. Yeah. It's a it's it's a really it's a it's basically um, he's a French French filmmaker, very intense and typically known for uh, various kind of erotically blatant stories. But this one is about a couple dying in real time. One of them has Alzheimer's, and it's a mm. very sort of like a real time sort of uh, very affecting, yeah. uh, you know. And, and it's and it's a lot about is about this this inability. How can anyone have it to re- to recognize one's diminishing right. powers? Very hard. And it, yeah, it, yep. It, it, but 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 the but the, the issue of succession is, is 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 present at every moment of this mortal. Yeah. This mortal ballet. I will say this since we're, uh, I know we're wrapping up. Um, I certainly, I've always thought about it, but I certainly think much more about death than I used to. I always think, and next year I want to do this, 
if I'm still around. I always, now the part of that was the legacy of the cancer. Cancer made everything continue. And if appended itself to every sentence once I was diagnosed. And when were you um, diagnosed? Uh, I was diagnosed, I had a brain tumor, I think it was about 15 years ago, and then I had lymphoma about 11 years ago. Um, but, uh, but as I get older, I just, you know, I think that all the time. That all the time. Are you done? Are you in the clear on both of them, or are they? Uh, the lymphoma, I'm in remission. Right. The brain cancer, the brain tumor, I'm, I was benign, and I probably am in the clear on that. I'm but, assuming. So was that your first brush with, with the yeah. mortal shadow? Yeah. Yep. And did you? I mean, did you at some point, alter your the pace of your plans? No, because not so much. No. Not so much. I wrote a book about it. That's you know. That's what. What's I the book called? Well, I, I mean, the, I, the book that I wrote after um, that talks about it most is probably Why Faith Matters. That was when the New Atheists came out. Mm -hmm. And I realized after having gone through what I went through that the religion they were talking about was not the religion that I recognized. So I wrote a book about that. Um, but uh, I don't, don't know that I changed my pace, but I think I changed my, the seriousness with which I took unserious things. So you chilled out on certain things. Yes, I did. Right. I always was relative, and some things I was relative, but more, much more. Like, right. I'm sorry you didn't get your parking space. I really am. <laughs> you, know? you, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't suffer torment yourself uh, yeah. all night not for that particular not so injustice. <laughs> not so. Oh much. wow, man. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I always, I wrestle. You know, I'm, I have no right. I have had no, knock on wood, nothing Good. to shatter me, but. I have a very active mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and other, right, you know, right, right. and so, right. especially in the last yep. few years, certain things. Everybody, have emerged, characters the, everybody have in the last few years has thought about it. Very I think seriously. so. Yes. Yes. Exactly so. And so I always wrestle with having an overactive and Ill, and uh, annoyingly a pesky mind. I often, you know, wrestle with how to alter my relationship with time. Yeah. And you know. Because that is the big difference: is right. one's relationship with time. When at one point it was, there was no such thing as time, and I at know. some point yeah. there is. True, <laughs> as S. J. Perlman said, "Time wounds all heals." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> time wounds all heals, and and obscures reputations of New Yorker humorists that were once. Yes, all the rage. exactly. That were once all the rage. It's true. Anyway, may our uh, all right, all right, may our punchlines last a little longer. Amen. I'll say amen to that one. I wish 
there was a treaty between your love 